Hey, if you wouldn't mind grabbing your Bibles, whatever you have, whether that's in uh, print form or device, you can turn to Ezra chapter 8. Week 7 in Ezra chapter 8, this is going to take us till about June as we're going to get through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Originally, these books were written together, so uh, we decided to, uh, to preach them together sequentially. Ezra chapter 8. If you're on a device, ESV, English Standard Version, is what you want to go to, uh, to to track with us. We have a hard time believing that God has things under control. That's the least arguable thing I'm probably going to say all morning, right? There's a lot of reasons for this. One reason... Uh, could be that technology has made us believe that we are incredibly capable, right? And convinced us that we have the power to make things happen. I mean, you know, if you live in a city and you got Amazon Prime and you click that order button, that thing might, that package might get to you in less than an hour. I mean, I'm waiting for A-Town to catch up to that because that, that sounds nice, right? I mean, we, we just think that we have the power to make things happen when they need to happen. In some cases, that's true. We, we, have, we think we have the power to fix everything that goes wrong, right? Like there was a time when you had to hire people to do stuff, and now you all are like going on YouTube and figuring this stuff out on your own. It breaks a week later, but at least you can say you did it on your own, right? But we, we are under the impression and the, and the assumption that we have the power to make things happen and to fix everything that goes wrong. We also have a hard time believing God has everything under control because of how out of control everything around us seems, right? So we doubt what's called the omnipotence of God or the power of God. In other words, if he has everything under control, we say, you could have fooled me because everything looks like nuts out there, right? Everything feels out of control. In reality, what we're doing in all of these moments is we're giving ourselves too much credit. We're giving too much credit to our own sense of power over things and our perception of things. Like, man, if you were, like, if you were inside the house yesterday and you actually opened the drapes and looked out, it looked warm. It looked warm. It looks warm right now. Like it looked warm yesterday, just sunny, clear, beautiful. I mean, what's a few snow flurries, right? Like it looked, it just looked beautiful, right? It was 18 degrees, man. I saw a kid in shorts walking down Luther Street, and I was like, you gotta check your weather app, man. Like it's 18. It's 18. Our sense of perception is off all the time, right? We're so sure of what God is doing when in reality we have no idea. And with that off sense of perception comes this off sense of of how powerful we think God is to move through things. So we, we discount. So our fallen perception, because our perception isn't perfect, we throw that perception imperfect, imperfectly onto a perfect God. And then what we do is we tend to strip him of his power. Right? Because we think, well, he must not be able to do that. It must be different than how only I can see it. And of course, the way that I see everything is 100% accurate all of the time, right? So, so yesterday, um, 
my wife told me this amazing story that happened to her yesterday in our house. So, man, we got this cat, and this dude is a beast. I mean, he weighs like 100 pounds, and um, I know there's a lot of cat hate out there. I don't, I don't love the cat as much as I just love those cats more than I love dogs, right? That's where I'm at right now. Um, I probably shouldn't have said that. Have you guys are going to flee now out the door into that warm weather. Um, so I guess what happens occasionally is our cat starts driving us just bonkers. And what the cat really likes to do, which is what all cats like to do, is they like to get as close to being outside as they can, even if they're like our cat is just like an inside-only cat. So what we do to tease that dude and to get him off our backs occasionally is we'll crack open the front door and we'll let him just sit there and dream of what life would be like if he was a free kitty cat. Right? So... Again, it was cold yesterday, but Melissa felt like it was a good time to crack open that door and put our cat in front of the door. So at some point, she's a couple rooms over, and she hears a, hello, is anybody there? Hello, is anybody there? And it turns out it's the mail carrier, like, like doing a wellness check, like at the house for us. She goes, well, I was just worried because, like, there's a cat at your door, the door's open, and it's five degrees outside, Right? <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that everything was okay. Um, we, had some, we, had, we had a conversation about that after she told me. Um, but our perception is off. We give power to things that we shouldn't be giving power to. And then we tend to remove the power that is contained in the person and work of Jesus Christ thinking, well, because I don't have that power, because I see that power stripped away over there, he must be just like me. He must be just like that, right? The other thing that we struggle with, that we have a hard time believing about God, is that we don't always believe that God cares about all the details of our life, the small details of our lives. Like all these details can't be that important to him. And you know, this is what, this is what, this is what happens on the heels of that is we say, and I'm, so I'm comfortable taking it into my own hands, so what I have now is a great arrangement, right? I'm uncomfortable putting things into the hands of God. I like keeping things in my own hands. And therefore, it just continues to fuel this aspect that, well, God doesn't really care about all these little things. I'll leave it to God to handle the big things in my life is what we say. Of course, this is what happens. When those big things arrive, you find that how you believe he works in the small things is exactly how you believe he works in the big things. So this is what we're going to do today. Today we're going to see how God's hand leads Ezra in the, both the big and the small things. And how his hand continues to lead us and guide us today as a church. Let me do a little recap. Because Ezra here, uh, as we learned last week uh, from Pastor Jeff, he's been tasked with leading a second wave of Israelites back to Jerusalem. So if you're just joining us for the first time, the book of Ezra is all about uh, the Israelites being in captivity in the land of Babylon and then getting an opportunity to return to the land, to return to Jerusalem, to actually rebuild the temple. There were some Persian kings uh, that God had put in the heart of to show Israel grace and allowed them to just get on back to the land, reestablish themselves. So some 80 years later, we see Ezra midway through the book that, that he is writing here. He comes into the picture and he's tasked with leading the second wave of Israelites back to Jerusalem. 
What was he doing? What was, his, what was his task? Well, it says that if you want to turn with me to chapter 7, verse 10, it said, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Ezra was a priest and a scribe. And it says, and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So that was the goal for Ezra as he led the second wave of captives back to Jerusalem. So Ezra gets a green light from King Artaxerxes to lead another group of captives, this time, again, like we just read, to teach the people. They needed to relearn the laws and the statutes of God. And this is what we see. Three times in chapter 7, we read that the hand of God was upon Ezra. Go with me to verse 6, and it says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Then go up to verse 9. It says, For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. And then go with me to chapter 7, verse 27. And it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So we see that there is a theme already as we get into chapter 7 that we're going to see continue as we get to chapter 8, which is that the hand of God was on Ezra. We're going to see that it's a theme. It's a theme all the way through scripture, by the way, but it's really pronounced here as we are finishing up the book of Ezra, seeing the way that God's hand is on him as he's preparing this rather large, crazy, just nuts journey with a massive group of people back to Jerusalem. This is what it says if you pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 8. These are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the region of Artaxerxes uh, the king. Now, none of you need me to read all of those names through verse 14 because I, I've been laughed at enough this week, I got to tell you. So, well, I'm just going to trust it in your own good time. And I know all of you are going to do that today. When you get home, you're going to read through verse 14. And it gives us this uh, genealogy of everybody that went back with with Ezra. So we get a chance to see all the names and we get to see that Ezra assembled this large crew. But he realizes at some point that there are not enough Levites coming back with him. Levites being the tribe of the Israelites who ministered in the temple and taught the people God's laws. So he finds men to do a search to find more Levites. Pick, pick up with me in verse 15. It says, I, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. And so what he does is when you read 17 through 20, he employs men to find uh, sons of Levi, and he gathers now a, a large band of Levite priests to travel with him because we can only guess uh, he needed help. 
We can only guess that he needed, uh, as a functioning priest, to have more priests to help him um, do all of the temple sacrifices and help him teach the law and the statutes of the Lord to the people. Ezra is a humble guy. He needs reinforcements. He doesn't want to go there as the single solitary priest of the Lord. So he says, hey, where are all these people that are supposed to be engaged in these activities? And so he humbles himself and he gathers them together and then he pauses. And then he pauses as we get to verse 21. Man, pausing is so important. Pausing, have you ever thought about that? Maybe you have, maybe you, maybe you haven't. Maybe a pause is a really scary thing for you because it means at some point you gotta stop in your tracks. It means at some point you actually have to think about what you're doing. It means at some point you have to think about what you're thinking. It means at some point you have to think about the things you actually believe. It means at some point you've got to think about the relationship that you have to the things that you actually believe. Guess what? That's a really uncomfortable spot. We're not good at pausing, right? We're not good at just stopping and saying, hey, hold on one second. Before I take another step, let me consider. And yet we see all through the Bible that wisdom comes by people who pause and stop. And this is what Ezra does. He humbles himself. He stops. He prays before the Lord because the journey to Jerusalem was a significant one. Pick pick up with me in verse 21. It says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves for our children and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. So we see that Ezra pulls back, he waits He consults the Lord. He has particular kinds of fears and concerns. And then we get to verse 30 as we're stepping through this. And it says, so the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and gold and vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So what we see here is that Ezra signs all of the stuff that needs to go back to the temple, the silver, gold, and the vessels. It needed to be transported by the Levites, and that's what he does. And then finally, as we get to the end of the chapter, we learn that they have a successful journey. We learn that they finish by taking inventory, by offering sacrifices to God. It says in verse 31, we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. There's that again. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and there we remained three days. And then the rest of it tells how they offered sacrifices. They took inventory of the gold and silver and the vessels. So one of the significant phrases that we see throughout chapters 7 and 8, which we've said here a few times, is that the hand of God was upon Ezra and the Israelites as they stepped out in faith, as they journeyed this long journey back to Jerusalem. God was leading his people back to worship. He was leading his people back to the temple. He was leading his people back to being a people 
who were living in the presence of God and living in obedience to him. God was rebuilding, he was restoring, he was renewing their lands, their houses, their temple, their tribes, their way of life. And by the way, God was invested in every detail concerning the livelihood of his people. None, none of it was fast. None of this was a fast process. The second wave of Israelites has come in 80 years after the first wave. None of it was fast because this is what we know about God. This is what we know about how God moves in scripture. We know that hastiness is not a word that goes good together with godliness, typically. God often moves how we would define as slow. What our perception, going back to those perceptions, would be as slow. Why does he, why does he do that? Why does God work so slow in your life? Why does it feel like your life has moved at a snail's pace when you consider the things that you wish could just, you know, give me a little nudge, Lord. Can we just, can we just kick it into gear? I mean, is, this, is life just first gear constantly? Just a slow, slow, slow capacity for moving forward? Why does God do that? Why does life feel slow to you and to me? Well, I think based on what we see here in Ezra and all of scripture, it's that so we have eyes to see the ways that he moves us, the means he uses to move us and then gain the spiritual maturity as he moves us so that our faith is strengthened while we wait for him to continue to move, right? Things happen when we are slow and when we wait and when we do what Ezra here does as he's bringing this second wave of people back to Jerusalem, the hand of God was upon Ezra and his people. The people also lifted their hands and their hearts to God. Ezra sought God through the fears and potential complications that they would face. We think, listen to this, that when we face fears, it must mean something is wrong with our faith. Or when we face barriers that God must be in the break room. In fact, it's the fears we experience due to the opposition we face that drives us to prayer. To lift our hands and hearts up to God and say, I need you because I got nothing for this. I got nothing for this. When we get to verse 21, Ezra goes before the Lord fasting and praying saying, I got nothing for this. I have nothing. We think helplessness is a bad thing. In scripture, God makes helplessness a holy thing. What you define as oppositions in your life are also opportunities. They are opportunities like Ezra to seek the Lord. Because here's what we understand if we step back and pause and we get self-reflective when we look it's some of the stuff that's swirling in our lives. How you respond in times of crisis tells you about your relationship to crisis, right? And how you define crisis in light of Christ. That's why we take inventory when we are in intense situations. 
we look at our lives and we step back and we say, where do I fall when everything is falling around me? Do I fall into paralysis or do I fall into prayer? Ezra's fears drove him to prayer. We're going to unpack some more of this in a few minutes, but tuck that thought away because this is what I want to look at for the rest of our time. And it's this, in what ways do we see the hand of God moving Ezra? In what specific ways here do we see God's hand moving Ezra? The first thing that we see as we read chapter 7, verses 27 through 28, is we see that God moves Ezra to courage. He moves Ezra to courage. Do you know that God gives you courage? Do you know that God supplies you with the courage that you lack, that you need in times when you need it? Do you know that God gives us courage when it's time for him to rebuild and restore and renew our lives and our families and our relationships and our church? And by the way, courage would be slightly dangerous if it didn't come undergirded with God's steadfast love like Ezra pointed out. Blessed be the Lord, the God, our fathers, who puts such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. The 728 says, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage for the hand of the Lord, my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Courage is dangerous if it doesn't come undergirded with God's steadfast love because steadfast love points to God's, what he's showing here, his covenantal loyalty that he commits to his people. Courage without love, well, that can lead to brashness, right? That can lead to foolishness. But godly courage, like what we see here in Ezra, is grounded in the steadfast love of God. Psalm 31:23 says, "Love the Lord all you saints." Listen to this. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. You don't know this right now. Some of you don't know this, but you all are all waiting for the Lord right now. Some of you guys are just trying to run ahead. But there is never a moment in your life, and sometimes it's more pronounced, and sometimes it's more extreme, and sometimes the weight of it bears on you heavier, but we are constantly in a state of waiting before the Lord. Because is there ever a time in your life where you just don't need courage? You know, God, I feel good today. You know, bumped up from 18 to 30 degrees, I feel good. I can walk outside without 50 jackets. I don't need courage today. See, the Bible wouldn't say that there's ever a moment for you that you don't need the courage that you accumulate through waiting on the Lord. The Bible calls that the lifestyle of the one who puts his trust in the Lord. Man, I don't like to think like that. I like to think, no, I'm good today. It was yesterday I needed the courage so that I could get to this day and just kind of be like, yeah, good, we're good. That's the first sign that you are indeed not good. Right? So instead of shrinking back, which sometimes we do into paralysis, courage 
helps us move toward the Lord, remembering that whatever the outcome, we have the courage to step out because we live under the covering of his steadfast love. In other words, the severity of your losses are contained within the steadfastness of God's love. Those losses might be incredibly significant, by the way. Ezra didn't cast a blind eye toward the potential for what lied ahead on that journey, for the loss that might be there. It was huge. The journey was incredibly dangerous. What Ezra needed was courage, and so God moves Ezra to courage. And then he also, secondly, moves Ezra to fasting and prayer. We read that in verse 21 through 23. Don't miss the insight we get into Ezra's heart here with how he paused. He was concerned. That dude was concerned about all the things that we are concerned about, our families and our stuff. I'm concerned about my family. I'm concerned about my stuff, right? Everything has implications. Everything comes from God. Everything is cared for by him. Here's what we know by reading this. The God who has everything under control also understands our fears. Now, would it have been wrong for Ezra to ask the king for protection? He says in 22, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen. Would it have been wrong for Ezra to go to the king and say, hey, you know what? This is going to be a heck of a journey and man, I could use a little help. I'm not sure that it would have been wrong. And in fact, when we get to the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see that he does ask the king for help. But Ezra wanted the king to know something about the God that he served, right? So I, I don't think we should think that Ezra was being prideful or, or macho here. He was fearful. Isn't that interesting? He was fearful about what might happen and what they might face on the journey. But he saw an opportunity in the potential opposition he faced to be prayerful rather than shrink back into paralysis, which for him just would have been asking the king for protection. So let's be clear with that, okay? This doesn't mean we don't ask people for help when we face opposition. In fact, it's just the opposite. We do what Ezra does. We get with people. Ezra didn't ask the king for protection, but what did he do? He gathered the people together to fast and to pray we implore God like Ezra, and we have confidence that God listens to us. We don't have a God that shuts his ears to those who humble themselves and pray to him, but he listens. Of course, at this point in the story, we have no idea if Ezra is going to face any ambushes. Ezra doesn't know that. It was possible. What was more important was that Ezra's courage led him to prayer and fasting. He was afraid. He was afraid, but his fear drove him to humility, not in thinking he could just figure it out himself. Listen to what it says to us in Psalm 20. This is helpful. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots 
some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall. We rise. We stand upright. You're probably going to stand with a limp upright. But you'll be standing upright. God moved Ezra to courage, to fasting, to prayer, and then finally... God moved Ezra to move. God moved Ezra to move forward. Look at what it says in verse 31. Then we departed from the river on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes along the way. Get on the road, Ezra. Man, you've done your due diligence. God has blessed you with courage. You paused God moved you to fasting and prayer. He's giving you what you need. You have everything, but you need to take that step, brother. You need to take that step. There was no guarantee, listen, there wasn't going to be trouble. But this time there wasn't, we read. God blessed them with a safe journey. Now listen, Ezra was undoubtedly helped in so many seen, unseen, and surprising ways that just aren't recorded for us here. But he wouldn't have known or experienced any of it had he been looking to his own hands to provide what he needed, right? It's an amazing thing when we finally receive the help we need. The regrets that I carry in my life, a lot of them come back to this idea that I just didn't want to ask somebody for help. And when I finally did, everything got better. And I'm angry and I'm regretful that my pride kept me from asking people for help. It's an amazing thing when we finally receive the help we need. We were designed as people to need help. Help is not the result of the fall. Right? What did it say about Adam? He needed needed a helper. Because he was imperfect, not at that time. He needed Eve, and Eve needed Adam. They needed each other. They needed help. Psalm 121 is so helpful. Speaking of help, it says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved, and he who keeps you will not slumber. Isn't it great that we have people in our church who can help us in so many substantial ways that reflect the help of somebody who never sleeps? You go to bed at night and God is awake. This is not somebody that has the same needs as we do, which is why he's able to provide for our needs like nobody else can. Ezra understood this, even with the risk that was before him before he embarked on the journey. Maybe you've been trying so hard to move through your journey and your trials on your own strength. You're trying to conjure up some bravado, right? Maybe you don't even think to ask the Lord when things start going south. So you either move forward brashly 
or foolishly, or maybe you have a pattern in your life of doing the opposite where you just fall back into paralysis. The pattern that Ezra models for us here is the pattern the church needs to imitate. We need godly courage grounded in God's steadfast love. We need to fast and to pray when difficult decisions or unwanted circumstances threaten to consume us. We need to make sure we move forward when everything in us wants to collapse in fear. How do we do that? Well, I think I just laid out some of the ways that God empowers us to do that. How do we practically do that as a church? It's pretty simple. We do it with others. It's pretty simple, not that it's a simple thing, but it's simple in the sense that if you just look to your left and look to your right right now, there are people there to help move you to courage and move with you through prayer and fasting and move with you as you move forward. It's the body of Christ, right? I'm an arm, but I need a leg because I can't move right now. God supplies us with people as a way to supply us with himself. God isn't just rebuilding, restoring, and renewing you alone. Listen, he is, I need you to listen to this. He is using your story, and you got a story, as the means to rebuild, restore, and renew others and other people's stories. Ezra's courage, his fasting and prayer and his moving forward was to the benefit of everyone around him. Remember that yours is too. Remember that yours is too. God is doing something at substance right now, you guys. God is doing something at this church. There is new life springing up all around us. There's also hard things. There's also significant challenges everywhere, as there always will be. Through it all, he is moving us the same ways he moved Ezra. Why? How? Because that's the way God moves. God always moves in us courageously and towards fasting and prayer and forward with others. Will we respond to God's movements with that same courage prayer, fasting, and forward motion? Will you step forward into those things with me? As I pastor you, as I preach God's word, as I say, hey, Substance Church, here's some things we see God doing. Here's some directions we see God moving. Will you step in to that space with me, with courage, with fasting, with prayer, with forward motion, not with brashness, not with foolishness. Man, we are slow as a church. We just go slow. We're not a rock and roll church. You guys are all straining to see your lyrics in the bulletin. I mean, dude, there's a ton of stuff we're not doing here. None of it's right or wrong. Most of it's just neutral stuff that we don't know what we're doing about, right? Will you walk with me as we seek the Lord together? And here's the bigger point of that. It's not Ezra, and it certainly ain't me, that should even inspire you as much as it's Ezra and my job 
to point you to Jesus. This is the most important thing I'm going to say in this message. Jesus was courageous in the face of opposition. Jesus fasted and prayed when he was at his absolute lowest point. Jesus moved forward in humility and obedience to the cross before rising triumphantly from the grave. It's because of Jesus that we have what God gave to Ezra, which is his hand upon us to lead us, to equip us, to encourage us. We have that because God has us. But we are meant to do this together and we will do this together by God's help and his good hand. Amen.